0: Welcome to the Beyond 3D podcast, where we explore all things 3D and the important role that 3D data plays throughout the manufacturing process, driving decisions throughout a product's life cycle. Here, we talk with industry analysts, business owners, developers, and industry influencers, and hear real stories that you can relate to and learn from, and know which trends and technologies apply to your business. So join us as we go Beyond 3D. Welcome everybody to another episode of Beyond 3D. My name is Angela Simoes, and we're happy to be here again uh, today. We will be talking about virtualization, and to join us in that conversation, we have Bastian Out, who is head of strategy at Simcon, based in Germany. Hi, Bastian. Welcome.
1: Hey, good to see you, everyone.
0: And uh, we have Jonathan Girouard from Techsoft 3D. Hi, Jonathan. How are you?
2: Hello, I'm doing fine. Thank you.
0: And Jonathan, so we, this is the first time that you've actually been on the podcast. So we've had other folks from Techsoft, but this is the first time you're joining us. So could you just take a minute and, and uh, talk about how long you've been with Techsoft and what your role is?
2: Yeah, abs- absolutely. So uh, Jonathan Jerwa here, and I've um, been working in 3D graphics, oh, let's see, for 20 years now or so. I've been with Techsoft for 13 and, and kind of uh, been in different roles, um, different parts of the company over, over that time. Right now, I am um, serving as their technical evangelist. My background is software development, um, but I focus on connecting to our, our partners, and um, a real focus of mine right now is building a, a technical community around our, our products. Um, but I'm also just interested in anything 3D and, and um, business development. Uh, so it's a real real pleasure to be here with, with you guys today.
0: Good, good. So, Bastian, before we jump into the virtualization topic itself, can you just introduce SimCon and, and also tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, hi, I'm Bastian, head of strategy at SimCon. And um, uh, before that, actually, I was at uh, McKinsey Digital, um, uh, which is you know, management consulting, helping companies shift course, uh, you know, uh, uh, adopt new digital ways of working, and that's also what I do at Simcon. Uh, so at Simcon, what we do is uh, we help people virtualize their injection molding projects. So we help them take their you know physical corrections that they otherwise do. Um, you know in in the shape of steel, you know shaving steel off molds, very expensive, very slow process, and making that digital. So that they have a virtual prototype uh, that they make those changes and improvements in, uh, you know which which saves time and money. And to adopt that type of way of working, you do need to change the way you know, you know you do stuff in your company, the way you organize time, your people, et cetera. And so that transfers nicely over from the McKinsey digital methods that I used before.
0: Great, and so when it comes to virtualization, you've been doing this for, for a while, um, how have you seen things change, let's say in the past year? I mean, we can't ignore the topic of the pandemic, right? So um, with everything yeah. going more, more virtual, <laughs> we're talking about virtualization, have you seen um, sort of an uptick in accepting this concept and, and practice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if there's one sort of major effect of this has had on the industry is to underscore the value of uh, digitization, right? So people not being able to come in physically to work, uh, if they still want to make progress, uh, they do need those, uh, you know, uh, virtual uh, ways of working uh, digital ways of working. First areas where you can see that is just the way that people work together remotely, but then also just to be able to do their jobs, right? Uh, they need a software equivalent uh, so that they can continue their design projects without being on the on the shop floor. Um, and so that has uh, actually given us a major boost in uh, uh, in acceptance and in the speed of adoption uh, that we see in the
2: market. Yeah, so, go ahead Jonathan. Yeah, so were you seeing actually operational changes in the way in which you interacted with customers over the last say year or so that, um, because everybody's at home in the way in which you interacted with them?
1: Yeah, uh, so definitely, um, uh, I mean, uh, the most obvious place where that changed is um, uh, in the way we uh, do sales, uh, trainings and services at right, those three areas. Um, uh, so where previously in sort of business to business, um, you know, uh, sales interactions, uh, there was the a strong belief really in the market that you do have to have boots on the ground um, uh, to really make uh, the value of what you do tangible uh, to build that human connection. Uh, we've seen quite a successful transition to actually just doing this via Zoom, uh, much as we're we're talking now. Um, uh, you know, it it, um, it also enables you to actually serve more customers more rapidly because you kind of cut out the traveling in between, uh, which is a significant factor uh, in in our business, right? Uh, given the fact that you know our software is is not cheap; it's not a casual investment for for most of our customers, um, uh, and so. Um, uh, you know, it's it's worth it to put uh, in um, a lot of effort and time uh, to really consult the customer well before they make that purchase. Um, and we've seen that that actually works remotely uh, quite well. Uh, you know, obviously, um, establishing new relationships on a human level is easier in person, uh, right? If you can actually have a coffee together physically, that does make a difference. Um, but it's a lot better than doing it on the phone uh, if you do it uh, via video conference. Uh, and then same thing in in, in services, um, right? So we've been, um, uh, uh, you know, where previously, uh, we used to do this essentially by phone and screen sharing. We now actually have video conference uh, plus screen sharing, uh, which uh, people really do appreciate because it gives that extra human connection. Um, um, yeah, I think, I mean, those are the sort of the major areas where, where we've sort of really just uh, very quickly switched the way we operate uh, given the fact that we can't travel.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it seems like we shattered some some um, tightly held beliefs over the last year or so, and things didn't yeah. stop. So that's that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, especially for those who pivoted and changed with a new situation.
1: Yes, uh, and I think that that uh, you know this is one of those examples where it shows that uh, speed of uh, adaptation is absolutely crucial, right? So I think that the pace of change overall. Uh, you know, across industries uh, with digital change has accelerated massively and it's all about adapting to that quickly.
0: Um, Kind of building on Jonathan's question of, you know, how operational changes, talk about the mindset of some of your customers um, and perhaps new customers, right? So people are being forced to consider virtualization and other technologies that maybe they had heard about but just were apprehensive and there was really no need to consider them right in, yeah. in, in a but now they're sort of being thrown into the situation where it's either consider these or do, or go out of business right so talk about how that's affected the the mindset of your customers both you know the designers and the engineers but as well as management you know is it top down is that i'm just curious as to you know are people happy about this change have they been a little curmudgeon about it? You know, talk about the mindset a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think the, the way that, um, the best way to frame what we do is we bring digital change, uh, and we bring new ways of working. And so adopting those rec- does require a shift in mindset um, uh, quite a bit. Uh, I think that the pandemic has helped with making that shift. Um, but the types of shifts that you, uh, you typically require is, uh, switching to more front-loading. So um, it means that the the front, like the early stages of your process, where you do digi- uh, design, right? they take a little bit longer than they used to. Right? Where before it was sort of a race to the first prototype, now it's like, let's, let's invest a little bit more time into doing alignment uh, with the people downstream, uh, you know, with machine settings, who do quality control, um, who do serial production down the line. Let's involve those guys uh, earlier uh, during design. So it'll cost you a little bit of time early on. Um, and, uh, but you save that time, you know, five or six fold downstream, right? And so to, it's always difficult to get people to sort of make a sacrifice early in order to get a delayed benefit, right? So in order to really get that, you have to paint a very compelling picture of the value that is to be had, right? Because it's less right. tangible because it's, it's, it sort of happens later that you get that. Uh, and so, that is, uh, that's sort of uh, the, the fundamental issue that management uh, on the customer side uh, need to consider and solve, right? Think of this more uh, of a, a sort of a change management issue and less of just installing a piece of software and mm-hmm. doing a training and mm-hmm. you're done. You won't be done, right? You have to, you have to convince your people that it's worth it to sort of stick with it, learn how to use this well, change the ways of working, um, you know, change old habits, Um and so that is often an underestimated aspect of uh, you know, how much value to actually get from this, um, right? The, 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 the more effectively you bring people on board, the more you, you sort of pick the first projects you do wisely to have inbuilt, um, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you, you wanna use those first projects as, a, as lighthouse successes that you can point to in order to sort of rally the troops around this new way of working, right? And so you need to consider that when you pick those projects and the way you do your sequencing. Better to do one project end-to-end thoroughly and quickly than stop and show everybody, look, here's what we did. Communicate about, here's, here's what the wins actually were. Here's what we learned. Here's what we're going to change uh, the next time around. Um, uh, you know, that's crucial.
2: So for our audience, um, we're curious if you could just explain a little bit about the specific area of engineering and manufacturing that you're focusing on, that of injection mm-hmm. molding, and then some of the challenges in that area that you're trying to, to fix with virtualization.
1: Yeah. So um, essentially, um, think of uh, plastic injection molding as you uh, you know shoot liquid hot plastic uh, into a cavity that is sort of the, uh, the inverse shape of what you want to build, uh, right? Um, and you would think that if you want a straight part to pop out uh, of that cavity at the end of it, you would just have that have that surface also be flat inside that mold, inside that cavity. However, if you build that cavity exactly like the shape you want to pop out of it, um, that uh, you won't actually get that shape, right? So because as it cools down uh, and solidifies, uh, it, it shrinks, right? The, the, the plastic shrinks during that cooling process um, and it doesn't necessarily shrink the same way everywhere depending on the thermal properties uh, of, of what you built. And so it sort of shrinks and warps, it twists out of shape. And so in order to get a part that is um, exactly like you designed it, right, you kind of have to build that mold a little bit wrong to get out a part that's exactly right. Uh, and so our software helps with that, right? So it helps you solve these shrinkage and warpage issues um, by predicting them, right? Uh, and so you, what you do is you use simulation to understand, okay, if I do these settings, if I build my mold this way, uh, if I build my cooling channels this way, uh, what will the resulting end product look like? Uh, um, how short will my cycle time be, right? um the shorter that cycle time is um the the more efficiently you can use your machines, for example. so time' is money there as well.
2: Yeah, so it sounds like um I believe these these molds are really expensive, aren't they? like if you build it wrong, you're yeah. you're wasting money there too, aren't you? Yes and time
1: significant quite significant, <laughs> quite significant yeah. amounts of money. so these are often six digit um sums per mold, uh right, depending on the size and complexity of the mold, it's somewhere in the five digit to six digit uh range. Uh and so if you if you get it wrong, uh you sort of have to go back and correct it in steel. And that's really expensive. That's also often in the thousands to ten thousands, sometimes even hundreds of thousands, uh, to do these corrections. Um, and so sort of getting it right the first time can save you a lot of time. It also saves you uh, a lot of money, right? Um, and so, one of these corrections actually can take four to six weeks. Um, uh, uh, if you're lucky, it'll it'll be done in two weeks. So, if you do, on average, you know, four to six such corrections per mold, because you're sort of trying things out physically, um, right? That really delays your time to market, and it really costs a lot of money.
2: So, and your so software—the the value
1: I... we provide—is cutting that down.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you simulate this in software, allow them to predict what what the part is going to be after it cools try to optimize the, the cooling process and then you just build it once and you build it right the first time.
1: Well, um, exactly, right? So what we do is we, we predict the future. Um, uh, so we, we let you anticipate the results uh, that you're gonna have in your manufacturing at a really early design stage. Um, and ideally at a stage where you can still change a lot, right? So once you've sort of cast it into steel, there's not it's really hard and expensive to change stuff virtually. It's just easier to change bits than it is to change steel um and so um uh, and it also enables you to um because you've got these downstream predictions of what's going to happen in manufacturing have a conversation with the guys from manufacturing earlier um so it enables you to have better conversations there
0: mm-hmm.
1: and on top of that it doesn't just sort of tell you what's going to happen uh we also have an an Uh, an automation functionality and optimization functionality to it. So you can sort of let use our software to set up not one simulation, but, you know, 30 simulations, 90 simulations to test different variants and then sort of help you pick the best one.
2: That's, that's fantastic. So you call this virtualization for our audience. um, Other people might be familiar with, with digitization. So going from the, the paper to, to the digital, and this is happening in, in, many industries. It hap- it's happening in the office where we just, let's go digital. But in manufacturing and engineering, it's industry 4.0. It's it's the whole movement to um, MBD and model-based design and model-based engineering.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, there are benefits to that, but there's there's challenges to moving organizations in that direction. And it sounds like you've you faced that when you when you bring these solutions to to your customers, that there's a there's a technical benefit to them, but it requires change in the organization and the way in which they do their engineering workflow. so what are what are yeah. some of those challenges, and how have you been able to overcome those?
1: Yeah, I think um, the the first set of challenges is understanding what the right process even is. Right? You know, what, what are the changes we need, uh, right? And so um, in essence, they're front loading. So you move uh, more of your decisions into the engineering and design phase so that you, uh, uh, you sort of have less of a hassle later on. Uh, a second one is cross-functional fu- cross work, right? So you've got people from upstream functions like design working together with downstream functions in decision-making during those early stages, right? So it it requires more people to be at the table during sort of the major decision gates that you have. When you go from your design to your first prototype, right? That decision, that go, no-go decision um, needs to be made cross-functionally. And so it involves getting more people to work together which is a complex organizational task. Uh, And it's iterative, right? So that's the third part. Um, So uh, probably, Uh, you're not just going to simulate once, you're going to simulate many times, you're going to simulate many variants, right? And so so what that means is um, anything that will help you automate the repetitive aspects of simulation, right? Setting that up in different variants, uh, analyzing results across many simulations, synthesizing those results so that they're ready for discussion and decision-making is really valuable. Right, so that so you could focus on sort of managing the parts that only a human can do which is decision making uh, uh you know, really collaborating together uh, making decisions uh, getting better outcomes as a result
0: do you have uh, so do you like a a, a customer example i mean you, the, to kind of illustrate what you've just talked about um, and I know you probably can't mention names of companies, which is fine, but anecdotally, do you have an example that you, you know, uh, can share that uh, demonstrates maybe it was the first time that the company did a virtualization and the results that they got from that?
1: Yeah, for example, we work with a large uh, multinational um, uh, manufacturer uh, in the automotive industry. Um, and so uh, they produce uh, you know, literally hundreds of molds every year, staggering costs. Um, And on average, they had, uh, you know, in terms of physical corrections, four to six of those per mold. And so that is a staggering amount of money uh, that you sort of, you know, put out on the table given that each of these costs thousands uh, of euros. Um, And so uh, uh, what we did there is we helped them introduce um, not just simulation, but sort of automated design of experiments um, and optimization Based on those simulations, and they've been able to cut down their, um, uh, uh, you know, the number of correction loops that they do by about thirty percent. Um, so you don't go from hundred to zero. Um, the reason is you go from uh, you know hundred to seventy percent uh, of those correction loops. That's a realistic uh, expectation, uh, which is a lot of money uh, and a really mm-hmm. good uh, return on investment. That's pretty significant. And, yeah, it's quite significant. Um, and so the, the types of obstacles that you face there are. Um, uh, setting up the process the right way. So what's the right process and then getting that done organizationally, right? So bringing your people on board, actually training the people, um, picking your first projects, where am I gonna do this? Uh, Learning to sort of work in this new way, uh, which is different and requires different types of decision-making along the way. Um, And so, uh, you know, we help with that. Um, uh, So we, you know, we have, um, uh, we we don't just uh, see ourselves as a, a software vendor, Uh, We do see ourselves also, so it's SimCon, right? Simulation and consulting. So that's the second half of the half of what we do. Um, So we help our customers with that. We help management think through, how do I set this up, right? How do I sequence my transition? How do I go from a pilot to scale? uh, So that it becomes sort of the new normal way of working.
2: Do you think that if you you didn't have that consulting side to manage change at the organizations, uh, you, you wouldn't be successful?
1: Well, I think it is possible, uh, given the amount of value that's just in sort of using the software, that it would be possible to sustain a business. But I think it would be less effective and that the customer would get less ultimate value from it. Right. So it would be sort of enough value to sort of justify the investment, but it wouldn't really be milking it. Right? It wouldn't really be getting the maximum out of it that you can, right? And I think ultimately, that's what we want, right? We want our customers to benefit from the software so that they continue to use it um, uh, uh, and, and, and really you know, improve the way that the industry works.
2: Yeah. Can we talk about data flow for just a second? Um, I'm really curious where sure. you have in the engineering design process and, and the life cycle of engineering design, you have ideation then you have design in CAD And then, then you go to manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's the step normally in subtractive manufacturing, you have a CAD cam. That's because even in, in cam, you have to kind of reverse, you have to rethink the part, then you go to manufacturing and then you go to quality control and then, and maintenance. You sit, you sit in there kind of in that, I'd say cam spot, but there's, there's also analysis. What we Mm -hmm. see is, is analysis feeding back to the design process and getting, getting Affecting design decisions. And is, is that where you, you see it? And, and we have to influence decisions kind of upstream when, when, when data is flowing. And so we have this kind of circular um, workflow of iteration and, and, and process iteration and engineering design iteration. Is, is that where you sit?
1: So uh, we actually sit in multiple places there. Uh, so people already use us uh, you know, when they're doing sales uh, to sort of cost their projects appropriately before they actually do the real design. They do sort of a quick and dirty version to sort of make sure they don't make any obvious mistakes early on. Then they use us again during design, um, uh, during the engineering phase, um, where they try to involve the downstream people to make sure they don't make bad decisions there. Um, then uh, during actual sampling, right? So uh, sort of the, the part that uh, you just mentioned and, and, um, and labeled as manufacturing is, is like this whole chain of events, right? So there's like, you design the part, you design the mold, you design the process parameters that you're going to use in manufacturing simultaneously, ideally, so that you can sort of use one to inform the other. Um, and then you, you build a, an actual uh, physical mold uh, and test it, right? So you do sampling. During that stage, we also use our software to do Uh, sort of root cause analysis uh, if something doesn't turn up as expected, um, right? So it it allows you by having sort of varied many parameters during uh, using simulation, you understand what are the parameters that could be off. And if I twist, you know, if I I pull this lever, what's going to change in the result? So if you see errors, you know what to do in order to correct them. But because otherwise all you see is like, oh, something went wrong. Now what do I do, right? So uh, it's used there. And then finally, it's also used in quality control. We actually have a a collaboration uh, uh, with a company called Volume Graphics who, industri- who do industrial uh, CT scanning. Um, and their software is compatible with ours. You can actually use the same quality measures that they use in their software, in our software to do the virtual optimization. So you can link those two things, um, the way you do quality control and the way you do optimization earlier on. So that you can also, also learn across time uh, sort of you know what works, what doesn't work. Um, and you have a consistent language for control across the entire uh, sort of for quality across the entire process. Yeah,
2: so sounds I, that sounds like
1: that—that is a—that is a, a, a recurring theme where quality means a different thing early than it does in the end, uh, and then a lot of sort of decisions get sort of lost in translation in, in these stages, right? Engineering has one idea of what does good mean, uh, what does success mean, than manufacturing, and and you you get some tension, some friction there. You can get that um, under control by having these con- upstream cross-functional teams decide on what quality means together, and then using consistent quality measures through your entire process.
2: So it really sounds like, uh, with with uh, graphics and and other kind of parts of of this process, interoperability, both from a yep. technical side, is is very very important because you're you're influencing design from things that are, are being analyzed downstream, um, being able to, to also have interoperability between teams is, is important. So this, this whole process is getting, would you say it's getting tighter and more, more efficient?
1: So I would say that ultimately it needs to be end-to-end integrated, um, right? right? So the, the idea is sort of maximize the end to endiness uh, if, if, if I can make that an adjective. Um, uh, of of what you're doing. Uh, That's true in terms of process where you want sort of downstream to be involved upstream. It also means you need to reflect that in your systems uh, and software landscape, right? You want the parts of the chain that you're using there, your CAD and your simulation optimization and your quality control later on and whatever system you use to um, um, steer the machines that you're using during manufacturing. You want those things to be able to talk to each other and sort of play nicely with each other. Um, And ideally, actually, I I think that if I were uh, looking at this uh, from a customer perspective, what I'd aim for is not just purely interoperability of the particular tools you're using right now, but their compatibility to open standards. The reason is, if they're not compatible to open standards and the connections between them are proprietary, it'll be really hard to switch out particular parts of that chain. Right, each element of the chain will make other parts of the chain sticky. It's like a puzzle, right, where you take out one piece and then you say, I want to put something different in," and it just kind of won't fit, right? Uh, And in that same way, I think that, uh, you know, if you kind of standardize the outside shape, um, uh, the, the way it connects to other stuff, Right, uh, it'll make you more flexible as a customer. It'll make you, it'll make it easier for you to benefit from wherever the fastest technological process, uh, progress is happening in the future, which you cannot anticipate now. Right, so aim for open standards, aim for uh, aim for open, uh, you know, interoperability. Um, I think those are the types of things you would aim for as a customer.
2: Do you, Do you see one standard? I mean, you're you're in automotive, being being there in Germany. Do you see one standard kind of rising to the top? Or, or is it still lacking in our industry?
1: I think it's still lacking in the industry. Uh, so there are some uh, sort of uh, you know, um, uh, first attempts at this. For example, there's uh, VMAP, uh, which is actually a, a publicly funded uh, standardization initiative here in Europe for CAX software, uh, which we are compatible with. Um, uh, however, I wouldn't say that there is already an established Um, you know, uh, coordination of the market on any individual standard, uh, right? So I think that that is something, uh, if you look at the dynamics of a market for standardization, um, the best incentives for making that happen are actually on the customer side right? So I would recommend to any customer ask for standardization because you are in the best position to make this happen. If you look at any individual software vendor, the incentives are not like that, right? Uh, the incentives are actually uh, that you want to uh, make sure that you have recurring revenue, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's it's going to be difficult to ask the, the individual players in the market uh, to do this on their own without uh, customers strongly pulling for it.
2: Yeah. I and think it what like- is they want to keep their data with them, right? That's that's yeah, that's, that's right. a, a business decision where we don't want to have an, and each organization is different, but we want to keep we want to keep it sacred to our ecosystem, um, and not be pushing it out there. And that's one of the things we're trying to work on is break down those walls. Yes, yeah, and mm-hmm. and either either push standards or or provide tools that allow you to bring in whatever um, data sources is is available to you.
1: Exactly. And to, so just sustain flexibility, avoid lock-in, um, because it's um, uh, you just won't have the patience to know what technology you might need in five years' time. right? And so you need to set up, as a customer, as, an, uh, you know, as, as a manufacturer, you need to make sure that you set up your system for interoperability, flexibility, and the ability to switch out particular parts of your digital chain later on as technology evolves.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so we are coming up on our time, but there were there was one other thing that I think we wanted to touch on, which is sustainability. And then uh, as we wrap it up, would love to get your uh, advice to anyone out mm-hmm. there that is uh, considering virtualization, or maybe they've tried it and had a bad experience. I don't know, but you know what would be your um, your your tips on What's the first step? How do I get started? You know, if I'm evaluating a vendor, what should I consider, that sort of thing. But let's let's address sustainability. Yeah. And
1: so, overall, uh, sustainability is probably the most important megatrend that is facing the plastics industry at this time, uh, both from in terms of um, uh, you know consumer perception in the market, uh, rightfully so. Um, as well as in terms of you know resulting from that regulation that is already coming now and will come with uh, you know, added force in the future. Um, and so I think that if you're a manufacturer and you don't have this on your strategic agenda, um, uh, you know that's a that's a grave mistake. So like this should be top of mind for management everywhere. Now, how do you operationalize that um, and and become more sustainable? Well, I think the first thing is, Uh, you need to think about uh, hard about, you know, what are the right metrics for sustainability, right? How do I even quantify this so that I can treat it as an engineering goal? Um, And then secondly, um, uh, you need to think about how do I operationalize um, uh, evaluating uh, on those metrics, right? So for example, let's say that you want to increase uh, the share of materials that you use Uh, that don't come from petrochemicals that use feedstock that is biological and sustainably regrown in in your production. Now, one of the things you need to figure out uh, is if I use this other material, what will the properties of that material be in manufacturing? What can I actually substitute for what? Uh, What design changes might I need to make to have the same functional properties with a different material? And so uh, by uh, using simulation software, you can figure that out because you can actually try it virtually because you, before you do it physically. And to realize that you need to trade off multiple goals that you have at the same time. And so you need software that is able to trade those off against each other, right? Because you will not be able to sort of intuit uh, what will the manufacturing consequences be, right? So simulation tells you exactly that, right? So it tells you if I use this material, what will happen? What do I need to change to get the same functional properties? Um, what might my energy use be, um, you know, how thin can I afford to make the walls of my part uh, without it, uh, you know, becoming fragile um, uh, so that I don't waste material, um, you know, how, how can I build um, uh, you know, my gating system uh, you know, through which the liquid plastic flows before it enters the cavity, you know, that part of the, the last bit of that essentially is waste. Um, uh, because, uh, you know, it's, as it solidifies, you, you can no longer use it for the next part. That's also ejected. How do I minimize that waste? All of these things are ultimately engineering design decisions. And so the information you need to make those choices should be available at the time of engineering decision-making. And so they should be in the software that you use, um, uh, you know, as you are doing your designs.
0: That's, that's a, a great way to sort of wrap things up and let's just get to the, um, the advice for anyone considering virtualization and how to get started. What would, you, what would be some of the things that you would, would advise? So I think, I think
1: the, the, the key piece of advice is start with the value. Right. So start with understanding where do I want the value to come from in my company? Where will the savings actually come from? Where will the benefits come from? Where will the gains come from? Once you've got clarity on that, right, it'll help you understand what should my process look like uh, that I want to have in the future. And then only should you pick the software that you're going to use and you know, in that process. Right. So your, your, your software landscape should fit your process. Uh, and your process should aim to get value. so if you do it the other way around and you sort of make your process fit your software, um, it's it's really likely that you're not going to maximize value. right So conceptually, what that means is you know um, management needs to think hard about what they want the future to look like, uh, you know where their gains should come from, and then work from there and not the other way around um, it also means that um, as you, you, once you've sort of picked what best fits into your planned process um, you know, of the future, um, uh, you should really think about change management. You should think hard about change management. How are you going to sequence it? You know, start narrow but deep, usually is the advice that we give. Right? So aim for really quick wins, uh, lighthouse successes that you can point to. Better to do one project really well and then talk about it a lot than to do 10 projects sort of meh, right? Because then you're not going to have anything to point to. And this is how progress dies, right? It's like, that's how you lose momentum. You've, you've stretched thin. Um, and now, uh, you know, people were like, well, oh, six months later, we haven't seen any successes. Um, right. uh, you know, let's take away funding. Um, so, you know, it's better to do sort of one thing fast, but really well, then scale from there, because now you've got something tangible to point to
2: along the way.
0: Very, very sound advice. Uh, Jonathan, anything you want to add to ra- as we wrap it up?
2: No, it was a real pleasure meeting you. And thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you both. Uh, it was a great conversation. Hopefully our listeners uh, found some inspiration and, and learned a few things. And uh, we'll put a link to SimCon in a, the comments um, or in the in the show notes. And so thank you again, both, um, um, Bastion and Jonathan. Thanks to our listeners. And for those who haven't subscribed yet, please hit the subscribe button and share this a podcast with your colleagues or anyone that, that you think might be interested in these types of topics around industry and 3D and virtualization, digitization, you know, as we, we are pushed more into a digital world. Um, and if you have a minute, please leave us a review on iTunes. It will help others find our podcast and join our conversation. Uh, and with that, we'll just say thanks again and have a wonderful day. Thank you.
1: Have a good one, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Beyond 3D podcast hosted by TechSoft 3D. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review or subscribe on SoundCloud. To listen to past episodes or learn more about TechSoft 3D, visit www.techsoft3d.com forward slash blog. Send us comments and suggestions at info at techsoft3d.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next episode of Beyond 3D.